0: Christianity doesn't care about rules. It's about the relationship. Jesus isn't concerned with my obedience. It's concerned with my heart. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. All I need is Jesus, not the church or the Bible telling me what to do. How I live my life is between me and God. In our culture today, Statements like these, which are not in the Bible, have become incredibly common. In America over the last 50 years, we've seen a generational shift away from rule-keeping and towards concepts like individual freedom and loosely defined spirituality. And it's easy to see why in the middle of the 20th century, Christians and the church were known, sometimes unfairly, for being obsessed with rule following, overly concerned and consumed with morality. And so when the Jesus generation emerged in the 1970s, the pendulum started to swing away from rule keeping and towards grace to the point where for some people, not a ton, but for some, everything was all good. And it was all permissible as long as you had a sincere and genuine love for Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. In many ways, this was a good correction. We know, church, that God really does desire a relationship with us through Christ. That God really is concerned about the motives of our hearts. And at its core, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus is not about morality. It's about soul transformation. But here's the thing, and I've seen this firsthand in some Christian circles today. We have pivoted so far away from rule-keeping and emphasized grace so much that any talk of actually obeying the commands of God and any talk of actually submitting to the law of God and out comes the dreaded L word, legalism. Like We are terrified of legalism. The last thing we want today in Christian circles is to be labeled as legalistic. And I want to proceed with real sensitivity here because I know that in a gathering this size, many of us have experienced real hurt from legalism. There's some people I've talked to at Coastal Church who have come out of backgrounds or churches where legalism was the culture. We are terrified of legalism. And here, let me define my terms this morning. I want to be real clear. John Piper defines legalism like this. You'll see it in your notes. Legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is the ground of our acceptance with God. So in other words, it answers the question, how can I be made right with God like this? Keep the law. Obey the law. And hope and pray that you can be made right with God on the basis of your good works, of your law-keeping. We know that this is wrong, right? All right, put an X through it in your notes. It's not a helpful definition for us. We know legalism is wrong. It's a distortion of Christianity and it's renounced strongly in the New Testament. Romans chapter three, verse 20 says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, we know, church, that we aren't justified by Our works, but by the works of Jesus. We're saved not by works through effort, but by grace through faith. And I want to make that really clear from the outset of our time today. We are saved only by the grace and the mercy of God. As one Puritan put it, we contribute nothing to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. We have to have that as our foundation today, but with that foundation, it can become really easy to label any effort to actually obey the commands of God, especially when obedience costs extraordinary sacrifice. It can be really easy to label that effort as legalism, and what hurts the most is that sometimes that legalism accusation comes most often from other Christians, Christians who mean really well, but say things like it's not about the rules, it's about the relationship. Well, this morning we're going to look at the rules, the law, the commands of God, and see that God's word, His law for us, isn't meant to stifle a relationship, but to protect it. That the commands of God are meant to seal and define our relationship with God, provide riverbanks for our relationship. Think about it like a marriage. When you got married, if you're married in the room today, when you said your vows on your wedding day, what you did was you agreed to the rules, the commandments of marriage, to stay faithful, to commit to your spouse for better or for worse. And those rules, I think about my marriage, those rules don't stifle my marriage. They seal and protect and define. They protect and, and nurture. They guard my marriage. We'll see a similar principle this morning with the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at all ten as we close out our Exodus series, and we'll see that God is giving us guardrails and riverbanks for life as redeemed people. And that the commandments, all ten of them, aren't meant to limit or restrict us, but to provide for us freedom. God's commands, every single one of them, is for our good. But this is so important, Coastal. The commands are for people who have already been redeemed not laws by which we earn redemption. And so we'll see this in Exodus 20. Look with me at verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before telling the Israelites what to do, before the commandments, God is reminding them of two things. He's reminding them of, one, who he is, and two, what he's done. We see who he is in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. This is God's Relational covenant name for his people, Yahweh. It's how he made himself known to Moses at the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. And then he tells his people what he's done. He's rescued them, delivered them miraculously from slavery in Egypt. Listen, the Exodus, I'm going to review here just for a minute. The Exodus is the, the grand redemption story of the Old Testament, it's the gospel version of the Old Testament. And for us as Christians, the Exodus account isn't meant to only be historical, but it's also meant to be a foreshadowing of what God will do through Christ and how God has already acted through Christ. It's a picture of the gospel. Like us, like the Israelites... We were all at one point in slavery and in bondage to sin, but because of Christ, our perfect slain Passover lamb, we are brought into freedom, out of death and into life, where then and only then, after we've been redeemed, are we given our instructions for living as God's people. We have to get this. First comes redemption, then comes the law. First comes mercy and grace, then comes our marching orders for life as a Christian. Foundation is so important. So what do we do with it? What do we do with the law? What do we do with the Ten Commandments of God? And what role, more specifically, do they play in the life of the Christian? I'm going to give us three roles or three functions of the law for the life of the Christian. It's really important that we get some handles on how to think about the law before we walk through it. So the rest of our time will look like this. Three functions of the law and then a quick ten-point sermon and then we'll go to lunch. Feeling feeling really ambitious today, Coastal. Okay, letter A. Purpose number one. Purpose number one of the law is to reflect the holiness and the sinfulness, holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. To reflect the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. First purpose of the law, I trust many of us have heard this before, is to be a mirror, a reflection of both the holiness and the majesty of God and the sinfulness of man. On One hand, the law reflects and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. It tells us much about who God is. God is holy. And Pastor Sean spent much time unpacking this last week, but I want to double down just for a minute. God's holiness, something we talk about a lot, God's holiness is awesome, but it's also terrifying. And I think that we can be a little cavalier about it sometimes. I know that I can in my own life. I can be casual about the holiness of God. In the scriptures, There are a couple of different times where people get glimpses of the holiness of God, where they come face to face with God, where they they see God, they experience him in some form or fashion. And if you're like me, you'd read those and you'd think, okay, if, if a Christian or if a man or woman of God got to meet God, what would their reaction be? I tend to think, in my own vulnerability, that if I got to meet God, I would be over the moon excited. Like I'd be overjoyed. I'd lift my hands in worship. I'd want to go and wrap Jesus in a hug. Like I'd want to be so excited to see God. And we think, okay, if you get to see God, what would your reaction be? Would it be excitement? The Bible gives us a really different picture. There's some instances, and I'll go through maybe a couple just for our time this morning, of where people got to meet God and their reaction was not excitement. It was terror. Isaiah chapter 6, a story that I trust many of us are familiar with. Isaiah, he's a prophet for God's people, and he gets this glimpse of the throne room of God. And it's an awesome scene, like thunder and lightning all around. Angels bowing down before the face of the Lord, all crying out together in unison, holy, 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 God is perfectly holy. And the train of the robe of God is filling the temple. The ground is shaking with earthquakes and peals of lightning. And Isaiah, this godly man who gets a glimpse of God, what do you think his reaction is? I think his reaction would be, this is awesome. We get to see God. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Instead of being excited or happy or overjoyed at the holiness of God, Isaiah sees it perfectly and then is instantly reminded of his own sin and unworthiness to stand before the Lord. And just in case we think this is the Old Testament, the New Testament gives us a similar picture. In Luke chapter 5, Peter meets Jesus, and Peter's been out fishing all night. He's caught nothing and pulls his boat to the shore, and here comes this itinerant rabbi who's super new on the scene. And Jesus tells Peter to go back out and cast out his net. And in this moment, what do you think Peter's thinking, right? Like Peter is a professional fisherman. He was born and raised on that lake. He knows every inch of it. And here comes Jesus, who two minutes ago was a carpenter. And Jesus is telling him, go cast your net back out. And so Peter decides to obey. He goes out and he casts his net back out. And what happens, church? Yeah, there's this miraculous catch of fish. Now, in my mind, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, I got to get me some more of Jesus because Jesus just provided for him, like provided for him financially because of that one catch of fish. Peter now feeds his family for weeks. Like, you got to get more of this Jesus guy. He knows where all the fish are. But what is Peter's response in Luke 5? In Luke 5, Peter looks at Jesus and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. His response to the glory and holiness of God is not excitement, it's terror and a stark realization of his own unworthiness and sin. John 1, or Revelation 1, we see this too. John gets a a glimpse of the glorified Jesus, his best friend on earth, and we expect John to go run and hug Jesus. John sees the glorified Jesus in Revelation 1 and falls on his face as though dead. Listen, church, a more accurate view of the holiness of God instantly reveals the sinfulness of man. In and of ourselves, we literally can't stand in his presence. We say with Isaiah, we are ruined, we're undone. What the law of God accomplishes for us is that it communicates to us exactly how we fall short of that standard. It spells us out. And it lets us know, it leaves us with grace and mercy as literally our only hope to be justified before God. Augustine says it this way, one of the church fathers, the law orders that we after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law may learn to implore the help of grace. So Augustine's basically saying here, after attempting to do what the law commands and failing, which every single one of us has done, we realize that the only way we can stand in the presence of God is if God alone makes us stand. The law highlights our weakness so that we might seek the strength found in Christ and his gospel. That's what the law does for us. So I want to define our terms one more time. This word gospel, if you are new to Coastal, or you're just checking out Christianity, maybe you wanted to see what all the fuss was about, We use the word gospel around here all the time. It's really, really simple. It's the story of the Bible, the good news of God's love for us through Christ. God's created us to be with him. We have sinned and rebelled against a holy God. In our sin, we have no hope. We'll see this in a minute in the 10 commandments. We've sinned in so many different ways, and God is holy. Holiness inspires terror in his people. We meet God, we can't be with him. But because of God's love for us in Christ, God sent Jesus and we know this, Coastal, that Jesus is fully God. He lived a perfect life and he died on a cross for our sin. And he rose bodily from the dead. And so that if we repent of our sin, believe in the message of the gospel, and receive Christ into our lives, we now have a hope. We go from looking at God and fearing and trembling. We go from looking at God as Lord and judge to being able to, through Jesus, come to God and know him as Father. That's incredible and to be totally reconciled into that relationship with God. That's one of the best thing that the law does for us, is it reveals the holiness of God, the ways we fall short, and it drives us to our knees, imploring for the help of Jesus. It's purpose number one. Second function of the law is to restrain evil. To restrain evil. This one is much more simple. The law in and of itself can't change human hearts. However, the law can serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. The law rightly enforced is good for us. It's good for humanity. It's good for human society. Romans 13 unpacks this more when Paul writes that the government authorities have been instituted by God to protect good and punish evil. Let us see. the third function of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God to reveal what's pleasing to God. The third purpose of the law reveals what's pleasing to him. As children of God, the law enlightens us as to what ultimately pleases God. R.C. Sproul said that by studying or meditating on the law, we attend the school of righteousness. We learn what pleases God and we learn what offends him. And since nine out of the ten commandments are explicitly repeated, And double down on in the New Testament, they are God's expectation for his children. The Ten Commandments are binding for us as Christians. Listen, we can live righteously here on earth. Not perfectly, but we can live righteously. In fact, God expects his people to live righteously. In the New Testament, he says, be holy for I am holy. We can talk about obedience, even eye-gouging out, hand-cutting off obedience, without falling into legalism, trusting that our imperfect attempts at obedience, covered by the imputed righteousness of Christ that saves us, is enough to please our Heavenly Father. When we obey the law, covered by the righteousness of Jesus, God looks at our imperfect attempts and is pleased. I have a four-year-old daughter at home, well, four and a half now, it's a big deal. And Piper has been learning how to do chores. We're walking through, uh, yeah, she lives totally rent-free. We wanna change that. And so (laughs) figured it was time to help out a little bit. And so she cleans her room. And she clears the table after we're done eating, and she sometimes loads and unloads the dishwasher. Um, I didn't know that there was a wrong way to unload and load the dishwasher until Piper started doing it. Amen, Jeeva. (laughs) That's great. Anyway, what Piper has started to do, and it's so, so sweet, is that every once in a while, she will do her chores unprompted. And you know, if you're a parent, when your kid does something, an act of service, unprompted, it's like the sweetest, most tender thing for a parent. You're like, in that moment, so proud. Anyway, a couple weeks ago, Piper, of her own merit and own accord, decided that she was going to help load the dishwasher. And I didn't even know she was doing it until after she came into the living room and told me, Daddy, I loaded the dishwasher for you. And I'm like, baby, thank you so much. I went over, and it looked like a bomb had gone off into the dishwasher. It was so bad. In that moment, Am I angry that she did it imperfectly? No. No, I'm delighted by the fact that she imperfectly tried to obey and serve me. And so, man, what I did is I fixed it. And then Amy came in and fixed it after I did it. (laughs) That's so dumb. But here's the point, church. Here's the point, right? God sees our imperfect acts of obedience and is delighted by them. We talked about this last week. Ephesians 2.10 makes it clear that God has set aside works for us to do. Listen, sometimes we hide behind that Isaiah passage where it talks about how our good deeds are like dirty rags. Our good deeds are like dirty rags if we're leaning on them for salvation. After we've been saved by the righteousness of Christ, our good deeds are like a fragrant offering to our Father. And He is delighted in them. So, We have these three functions of the law, three roles of the law. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. As redeemed people, saved by grace, let's look at them, high-level overview, and we'll see how we can use them to conform our lives into the image of Jesus. These commandments, or literally in the Hebrew, ten words are split up into two different categories. The first four are known as the first table of the law, and they're summarized by the imperative in Deuteronomy 6.5. Which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So you might make a a little box around commandments 1 through 4. They all speak to loving God. It's the first division of the law. Commandments 5 through 10, the second table of the law, as theologians talk about it, deals with loving people. Summarized by Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're wondering where I got this division or these summaries, I got them from Jesus. In Matthew 22, there's this scene where Jesus is being tested. Tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers trying to trick him in his words. And they ask him, in verse 36 of Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's Jesus quoting Deuteronomy here. In verse 38, that's the great and first commandment. Verse 39 the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Jesus quoting Leviticus 19. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So church, it's helpful to think of the 10 commandments almost as an exposition, an unpacking of Jesus's words here in Matthew 22. What does it look like to love God and love our neighbor? These 10 words in Exodus give us some insight and guidance. So let's walk through these. I'm going to hit them pretty quickly. I want to give us just one or two things to think about with each one. I'm not going to be able to answer every question you might have about each commandment, but I want to give us an overview and hit them all as faithfully as I can. So number one, Exodus chapter 20, verse three. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is in your notes. The first commandment deals with the internal worship of God deals with the internal worship of God. It's a relational command. God is stating that he and he alone is to be the ruler and God of his people. The phrasing before me could literally be translated before my face. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's used to describe a man taking a second wife while his first wife is still alive. So spiritual adultery is the connotation here. And if you're married this morning, this should give you a good picture of how jealous God is for the affection of his people. In verse 5 in Exodus 20, he declares himself to be a jealous God, which isn't an insecure feeling. It's not sinful, but it's no, it's a right and just sense of these are my people. I will not share them. They belong to me. No husband in this room this morning would willingly share his wife. And our God, in the same way, will not share his people. We'll come back to this one at the end of our time. Let's move on to number two. Commandment number two, verses four through six, prohibit the creation and worship of carved and graven images. The second commandment focuses on the external worship of God. So first internal, second external. In the first commandment, we're told to worship God and God only. In the second, we're told to worship God rightly. God tells us himself in the New Testament how to worship him. Jesus says it in John chapter 4. We worship God in spirit and in what, church? Truth, spirit and truth, not by creating or bowing down to images. There's a story in Leviticus chapter 10 where the two sons of Aaron, the high priest, Nahab and Abihu, decide to offer unauthorized incense in worship before the Lord. By this point in the history of Israel, God had laid out instructions for tabernacle worship. These two guys decide they want to take manners into their own hands, And so they decide to offer this unauthorized fire before God. They think we're going to worship God on our terms. If you've read Leviticus before, you know what happens. The Bible says that fire came out from before the presence of the Lord and consumed them. It's no trifling matter. How we worship is just as important as who we worship. We don't worship God on our terms. We worship him on his And he's laid out guidelines for us in the New Testament. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We pray together. We set aside our money and give. We observe the ordinances. We'll do this next week in baptism in the Lord's Supper. And we listen to the preaching of his word. Commandment number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment addresses the verbal worship of God. God cares about how we treat his name, church, He's identified himself to his people and expects us to address him rightly. The speaking of a name isn't just a word, for words convey thoughts and names represent identities. What's forbidden here is not the use of God's name, it's the misuse of God's name. In other words, stated positively, this commandment could be put, use God's name with proper reverence. Jesus teaches us to do that in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, what church? Yeah, hallowed or holy be thy name. With this third commandment, I wanna give us just two real quick methods of application, two practical things. Number one, Pastor Andrew says this all the time. I love it, totally gonna steal it. When we sing in worship and we use the name of God or Jesus flippantly without thinking about what we're singing, we could very easily break and violate the third commandment. How we treat the name of God really matters. And the second thing is, think about this. How do we end our prayers as Christians? In Jesus' name. Man, I'm just gonna confess as a pastor how often I have prayed and then just tagged in Jesus' name, amen, and moved on. We need to realize what we are saying when we pray in Jesus' name. The privilege of prayer was bought by the blood of Jesus. The access we have to God the Father was paved by Jesus because Jesus came, died, and rose again. We can now pray in Jesus. More specifically, we pray through Jesus. We have access through Jesus. It's an incredible gift that he gives us. And so we need to be so careful when we pray. And again, I'm preaching myself here to not just tag on to the end of our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. No, let's treat that name with reverence. We dare not speak the name of Jesus without reverence. It's the third commandment. Number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The fourth commandment deals with the temporal worship of God, how God is worshiped, even through how we use our time. It's where I get the word temporal. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one because I actually walked us through the doctrine and the principle of the Sabbath last month when we were in Exodus 16. But here's what we need to know for today. I mentioned this earlier, but the fourth commandment is the only commandment out of the 10 that isn't explicitly repeated in the New Testament. So if you're wondering this morning, are these binding to me? Apart from number four, they are absolutely binding to you. However... Christ is our fulfilled Sabbath. We saw that last month in Colossians 2, but the principle of the Sabbath of resting and then resting in Christ still stands for us today. All right, let's transition to the second table of the law. And we'll pick up the pace here a little bit. Commandment number five, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The fifth commandment addresses the sanctity of human authority. Just as the first table of the law begins with a command to honor God, so the second table begins with a command to honor man. The word requires that honor be shown to one's parents. And this word honor here literally means heavy or weighty. It calls for showing respect and deference and esteem. However, the fifth commandment does not require blind obedience to authority. Honor is an attitude or a disposition, usually manifested by obedience, but not always. It's possible to obey without honoring and to honor without obeying. And what's more important here is the honor specified by this command, by the fifth commandment, is not dependent upon the worthiness of the one in authority. Rather, it's dependent and based upon the position into which the Lord has placed an individual. It's really important think about Jesus and Pilate in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, Jesus is facing trial before Pilate. Pilate can do one of two things with Jesus. He can crucify him or he can release him. Jesus, he's God. He has all the power in the world. But Jesus submits to Pilate because he recognizes that Pilate's authority has been given to him by God. He doesn't submit to Pilate because Pilate was a godly or worthy man. He submits to Pilate because Pilate had been put in his position by God. So for us... As Christians, we obey the fifth commandment by showing honor to our parents, regardless of whether or not they were honorable, regardless of whether or not they were even godly. We honor them because God has put them in positions of authority over our lives. Now, this is the one commandment where the application is going to vary from individual to individual, because we know this parenting is an 18-year journey from authority to influence, The authority you have over your two-year-old is much different than the authority you have over your 18-year-old. We know that. And so this commandment should land differently for the 13-year-old in the room. If you're 13, obey your parents. The commandment's clear. But if you're 30, find out what honor looks like and honor your parents. Commandment number six, verse 13, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment focuses on the sanctity of human life. Now, when I say sanctity here, I just mean sacredness, specialness. Commandment number six, sixth commandment focuses on the sanctity of human life. The term that's translated murder in this command specifically refers to the unlawful or malicious taking of innocent human life. There are eight different words in Hebrew for killing a human being. This one, this word murder here, is used as intentional unlawful killing. It's not talking about defending yourself, defending your family, or defending your home. It's not talking about engaging in warfare. It's not talking about capital punishment. No, it's talking about murder. This commandment can be stated positively. We can look at it positively, simply as preserving innocent life. And so, what it does is it calls for a cultivation of a mindset that seeks to preserve the sanctity of life in all areas. This is why, church, we care about the life of the unborn so much. So why we partner with organizations like CareNet? It's why you need to bring your baby bottles back next week, because it matters. Like Psalm 139 is made clear, God is knitting together babies in the wombs of their mothers and they are not fetuses waiting to be granted life the moment they're born, they are alive. Amen. They're alive. And this commandment tells us, number seven, commandment number seven, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment addresses the sanctity of relational intimacy. The primary purpose here is the protection of marriage, but it's not limited to marriage. Matthew 5, Jesus taught that the the definition of adultery could not be limited to the physical act of sex outside of marriage, Matthew 5, 27 28, but that it even encompassed lustful thinking towards other people. We saw this with the last commandment too. We're not off the hook because we haven't killed anyone. When we harbor anger or bitterness or resentment in our hearts, we are breaking that commandment In the same way, commandment number seven, every second look we take, Every impure thought that we tolerate, every image we view or word we read that causes us to lust is a violation of the seventh commandment. We're seeing, church, it's doubled down on here in the New Testament Is God's word for his people. Commandment number eight, verse 15, you shall not steal. A couple more. The focus of the Eighth Commandment is on the sanctity of stewardship. Stewardship is the principle of basically being a caretaker. The Bible teaches that God is the creator of all things. God owns all things, and he's given us certain things, our families, our time, talent, and treasure to steward, to care for. And when we steal, we're stealing from God and communicating to him that we don't trust his provision. When we steal material things or time from our employers, Even when we steal credit, do someone else, we violate the Eighth Commandment. Commandment number nine, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Ninth Commandment focuses on the sanctity of truth, the sacredness of truth. Now, I want to note here, this commandment doesn't say always tell the truth. It doesn't say never say anything untrue. This commandment focuses in on truth-telling in a legally binding format such as in a court of law where another's well-being is at stake. What's at stake in this commandment is malicious lying, which the New Testament prohibits in Ephesians 4.25. The ninth commandment does not prohibit deceiving someone in order to help someone. So think about the the Christians who would hide the Jews in the Holocaust. They're not violating this commandment. The commandment does not prohibit deception in sports or even board games. (laughs) Listen, Monopoly is terrible for my marriage. (laughs) Terrible. When we play Monopoly at home, my wife says that I turn into a different person. I think the word she uses is miser, Um, which in my mind, it's like, that's how you play Monopoly. The goal is literally to bankrupt someone else. But hear this, when I try to convince my wife that trading me boardwalk and park place is a good deal for my four measly railroads, I'm not breaking this commitment. It's deception in a board game. It's not, and that's in jest, but it's also true. Like this commandment is prohibiting malicious non-truth telling. All right, last one. Commandment number 10, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. The 10th commandment deals with the sanctity of contentment. Coveting is a selfish desire sinful desire that, that we possess that makes us want something that belongs to someone else. And the 10th commandment cites the three things, it's intentional here, that we are most likely to covet. Money, sex, and power. House, wife, and livestock. And the antidote to coveting is contentment, to trust that God is sovereign and providentially provides exactly what we need church when we need it. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4, verse 13. It's not about sports, it's about contentment. He can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. Trusting in the provision of God through Christ is that we grow in contentment and avoid coveting. Everyone take a breath. All 10. I said it was the longest bulletin of all time. All right. I know that was a lot of information, but if you're like me, you're thinking, after a list like that, where do I even begin? Honestly, like this is the law of God for my life, for your life, the law of God for our lives. And it's, it's, it's really easy to look at this list and think like, where do I start? Like all of us, I'll be real honest this morning, I've broken all 10 of them in different ways. All of us have broken all 10 of them in different ways. And remember that's okay to dwell on. Like purpose number 1 of the law is to reveal the holiness of God. We see this list, we see how far we miss the mark of God's standard, and then we praise God for his grace through Christ. Like we look at this list and think, God, I can't keep these, but you did through Jesus. And because of Jesus, now his forgiveness and grace is imputed to me. We're marked clean. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we realize our sin and we miss the mark. But here's the challenge I have for us. Don't stay there. Like, don't stay in that feeling of gratitude. It's good to start with. But in a very real way, there is room for sincere and specific and genuine repentance this morning. A right response to the Ten Commandments for the life of the Christian should not be to throw in the towel saying, well, we can't keep them. We've already broken them. What's the point? We're just going to rely on grace. No, church, I think in a very real way this morning, we need to repent. To so look at this list and repent of our sin to realize how offensive our sin is in the sight of a holy God. That's what I've been wrestling with in my own life all this week. We need to be a people who are quick to repent and to realize that when we do so, when we repent and resolve to keep the law, to obey the commandments of God, we're not being legalistic. We're not neglecting our relationships with Jesus when we resolve to keep his commands. No, we are building our relationships with Jesus. We're cultivating them, obeying God, and abiding in Christ are one in the same church. In John 15, Jesus makes this really clear. He gives us this illustration of abiding in him as branches abide in the vine. And he tells us in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. So how do we abide in Christ? We obey the commands of God. I want to invite the band back up. We'll close with this. I want to give us something I think really practical to take away this morning. Look back with me at Exodus 20, verse 3. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. If we can keep this one, then the rest, church, will naturally follow. If we have wholeheartedly surrendered to Christ as Lord, if there's no room for idolatry or pet sin in our lives, then the back nine will follow. And in the same way, we can't break any of the last nine without first breaking the first one. If we covet something, we've made that thing a God. If we lust, we've made that object of our lust a God. And so church, here's where I'm really gonna just have to trust the spirit of God to move on our hearts this morning. What other gods are you placing before Christ? What other gods what areas of your life have you not yet surrendered to his lordship? I heard a story, and I'll close with this, in the Middle Ages about knights being baptized before they would go out on the Crusades. And these knights were coming to Christ in huge numbers. It was an incredible work of God. And they'd be baptized by full immersion just like we do here at Coastal, and they would be baptized, but they would do something weird when they were baptized. They would be baptized, lay back in the baptismal, go all the way under, except they would hold up their swords out of the water. What they would do when they held up their swords out of the water is they were communicating, God, you can have everything except what I do with this on the battlefield. And I think for some of us, we're holding up our phones. We're holding up our wallets. We're holding up that relationship that you have with a member of the opposite sex at work that your spouse does not know about. We're holding up what we're getting our satisfaction in. Holding up where our identity's in. Holding up our parenting or a pet sin. Again, it can be an idol, a good thing that we put on the throne that God deserves, or it can be a sin, an act of rebellion in his sight. But hear this church, make it real practical. If we are people, who are consecrated and set apart and committed to obeying, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. If Jesus is truly the Lord of our lives, on the throne of our hearts, if Jesus is the God that we worship, then guess what? Everything else is going to follow suit. You don't have to worry about coveting if your deepest satisfaction is found in Jesus. You don't have to worry about adultery if your satisfaction is found in Jesus. You don't have to worry about harboring anger or wrestling with unforgiveness if your heart is set on Jesus. And so, church, what are you holding up? Like, what am I holding up in my life? I think, in a very real way, there's room for repentance this morning. And I've seen, we've all seen these articles about revival breaking out at these college campuses all across our country. We don't seek revival, we seek Jesus. We're not revivalists, but get this, church, if we offer ourselves to the Lord as a fully consecrated body of believers, believers whose hearts are set on commandment number one, God, there's no other God apart from you, then what could God do through Coastal? Like, what could he do in Williamsburg? What could he do in Battery Park and in Gloucester and Hampton and Chesapeake? What can he do here at Yorktown, church? This is my, my plea for us this morning, is that there would be no other gods before Jesus, So I'm gonna invite the prayer team up and we're gonna pray and we're gonna sing. And and that's my prayer. It's real simple this morning is that we would have no other gods before Jesus, that we would take a good hard look at our lives. We'd hold up the 10 commandments in our lives and think this is God's law for me. This is binding for me. Lord, how am I honoring you in my life? And what ways am I dishonoring you in my life? And we wouldn't just stay there and sit in the, well, it's covered by Jesus. I'm so grateful for the cross. I might as well not try. No, that we would see that and we would repent, that we would repent. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time this morning. thank you for your word. It's so good for us, God. It's so good for us. I thank you for the the privilege of opening it today. I thank you for this church family, God, and what they mean to me and what they mean to my family. Father, I, I pray right now that we would be a people who are set on obeying number one, that we would have no other gods before Jesus and that by your spirit this morning, you would move in conviction. God, that you would reveal to us what ways we are falling short. We hit these commandments so quickly, God, but I know that there are ways right now, even in my own life, I'm thinking of that, God, I'm not honoring you. And I pray we wouldn't stay in that spot this morning, but that we would repent of our sin and resolve to pursue holiness and know that pursuing holiness and abiding in Jesus are one and the same. Help us to repent. And seek first the kingdom and your righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.